Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 4, Episode 14. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, Steve, we've got a very special guest today on the show. Retail executive, actually, you hosted live on the stage at Vegas Shop Talk, Nancy King, SVP Product Engineering at Target. Yeah, well, you know, I've had, uh, probably like a lot of people, a fascination for Target over the years. I, I One of my favorite retailers. It's been mm. a really interesting story over the last few years in particular, as we'll get into. And I was very, very lucky to be able to interview her at Shop Talk. Uh, that interview was, I think, about 13 minutes because the yeah. Shop Talk folks hone the timing of all things very mm-hmm. carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time we get to air it out a little bit and do a do a deeper dive. So uh, very, very interesting story and uh, interesting role that she's got a target as well, which we talk about. We've talked about them extensively throughout the series of, you know, how they respond to the pandemic and, you know, how they how they're coming out the other end uh, so so powerfully. So looking forward to that. Um, let's get to news of the week. So a uh, pretty big week, I guess, so to speak, for Amazon, Andy Jassy's first letter to shareholders. Pretty. What did you think of the letter? What is it? 24-minute read. They, they, you know, when you subscribe to Amazon, they, they helpfully calculate how long it's going to take to read it. You know, not a short document by any means, right? No, he's really, I guess, continuing on in the tradition of Bezos's annual letters, which are uh, both long as well as usually pretty pretty interesting. So I, I have encouraged people over the years to go check out the Bezos letters and I would encourage people to go mm-hmm. check out the Jassy letter. He, he does a very deep dive on just about everything that's mm-hmm. going on at Amazon. So I think there's a lot of uh, just kind of fun facts but also a lot of interesting implications as to uh, what retailers can take away from it and maybe a bit about what's on the horizon for Amazon. Well, I thought as I read through it that it was sometimes, as it, as it is in these things, what was not talked about was as interesting as what was talked about. What what jumped out to you in the uh, in the letter, in the note? Well, the main thing that jumped out to me was that uh, Jassy is apparently a Foo Fighters fan. He quotes yeah. a lyric from a from a Foo Fighters song. So that, that was probably the most interesting thing. But the converse of that was he didn't really talk at all about advertising. Hmm. Which is really fascinating to me, as as folks probably uh, know or uh, might want to start to pay more attention to the advertising business at Amazon. Uh, just recently, got shed more light on because they started to disclose more about it in their earnings. And what we learned is, or what we learned more about, is that it is a huge and rapidly growing part of Amazon's business, and it is probably now the most profitable part of Amazon. So the fact that it is extremely profitable growing quickly and uh, an important part of the Amazon flywheel and doesn't get talked about in a 24 minute read. Kind of interesting. Hmm. Suspicious. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe thought he's already covered it in the, you know, Jeff spoke about it actually for the first time, right? In the last letter, it was the, one of the first times they'd actually zeroed in on it. But um, you know, I like the way he ends it. It remains day one. Like I said, you certainly can get a lot of kind of fun facts and figures about Amazon, and he really dissects how the business performed and how they responded, particularly during the peak of the COVID crisis. I think that's pretty interesting. The mm-hmm. the thing I think from a strategy standpoint is most interesting is how he talks about innovation yeah. uh, and how they think about that and this idea of a minimally lovable product uh, and a bunch of other aspects of of their innovation process. So that if if you only have a couple minutes, that's that's the place I'd go to first. Sticking with Amazon, they uh, they were in the news talking about um, you know they're doubling their efforts to 
get their arms around their their returns process. My thoughts was you kind of created that mess yourselves, Amazon, and so good you're focusing on it. But they they seem to be very liberal with their returns, and and that's worked for them in terms of acquisition. But it feels like the um, the bill is coming due. Well, yeah, I mean, this isn't, uh, you and I have talked about this before. I think I wrote like four years ago about the growing returns problem in e-commerce. As, as many people probably know, returns online are much, much higher than they typically are in stores. And so as mm-hmm. e-commerce continues to grow disproportionately, uh, barring some major changes, you're going to see uh, returns grow disproportionately. And that's terrible for the environment. It's often not great for customers that have to deal with returns, but it's mm-hmm. also very expensive. So on the one hand, yeah, it's not surprising that they need to focus on this for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, but yeah, they've, they've, uh, they've enabled, I guess, the problem in a, in a lot of respects. And given that Amazon is, you know, what, roughly 40% of all all e-commerce, presumably, they're mm-hmm. in the vicinity of 40% of all returns. So if they're able to do some things differently, it could be very important to their performance, but I mm-hmm. think it also could be hopefully pace-setting or set an example for the industry more broadly because, generally yeah. speaking, lots of people tend to respond to what Amazon does in terms of policies and pricing and all those things. Let's talk about stores. So there's a bunch of information on uh, on stores. Uh, you know, Kohl's, for example, Takeover bids, they seem to have dozens or hundreds. Boy, if they could convert all those people and analysts walking through the stores to do due diligence in the shoppers, they might actually have a good quarter. <laughs> yeah, I, I never thought of selling your company as a traffic driver, but that's an interesting point. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's not much transparency there, so we'll kind of keep an eye on that. Kmart down to its last three stores. Well, it's it's been uh, part of the reason why I talk about Sears being the world's longest liquidation sales. I think, you know, in fact, my former boss at Sears, Alan Lacey, said several years after he left Sears that, you know, we all know how the movie ends. We're just not sure how long the movie is. You know, it's just <laughs> like this has been going on for a really, really long time. And it's kind of amazing, actually, that there are any Sears or Kmart stores still around. So in a lot of ways, yeah, much ado about nothing. I did go back in my book. I've got a chart uh, that depicts a graphic that Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, supposedly carries around on his phone, which has the top 10 U.S. retailers by decade. And I went mm. back and I looked at that and I was reminded that in the 1970s, Kmart was the number three retailer in the United States. Wow. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, Kmart had dropped off that list, but both during the 80s and the 90s, Sears was number two. Hmm. So you think now about, you know, here are two massive, iconic household names, at least in the US mm-hmm. uh, and a few other markets mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, now are down to three soon to be zero stores. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a sad story, but it does, it does show obviously what happens if you mm-hmm. don't transform and respond to what, uh, what customers want and how technology is changing and all that good stuff. Well, speaking of, uh, transforming and what customers want, a couple of new notes from, uh, let's see, Lululemon wants to get into resale. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not that interested in buying used Lululemon stuff, but maybe somebody is Target on ThreadUp Marketplace. Uh, so we've got, um, and I guess Rent the Runway. Well, I think the question here is really how high is up. I think the the interest in the so-called circular economy uh, remains strong on both the part of consumers as well as retailers. You know, we were talking off mic about the challenges. Whether you're talking about a model like Rent the Runway, mm. you know, which is rental or literal resale, 
there are a lot of handling costs and there are a lot of pricing pressures. And so the economics of, of doing some of this stuff is, is not yet so clear, but I think we're going to continue to see retailers really, uh, experiment with different, different models to see if there's a, there's a way to, um, to make this work. You know, one of the things I think that's characteristic of, uh, pretty sure this is what Lululemon is doing, but also I think, um, Patagonia and some other brands is, you know, they're giving store credit or some sort of incentive Mm. for the customer to come and trade in their, their used products. So it's both a play for sustainability, but it's also potentially an incremental way of, of getting an extra sale or making it, you know, increasing the frequency on the part of customers. All right, so sticking with stores, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, put out some numbers that were, shall we say, um, unimpressive? Well, that's that's the understatement of the year, Michael. I think uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty much a train wreck. They fell way short of Wall Street's expectations, but just on an objective basis, the results were terrible. They had about, a, I think, a negative 12% comp store decline. They uh, had a, uh even greater loss than they've been experiencing. So yeah, very, very disappointing. They did point to a number of supply chain issues, which makes sense. Fair. But, yeah. uh, but you know, they, you know, what Mark Triton's trying to do there, I actually think is fundamentally pointed in the right direction. They've been investing in improving their stores. Mm-hmm. They've been doing sort of, he comes, as some people will know, he comes from target. So he's sort of doing a target from a private branding standpoint. Uh, clearing up a lot of the clutter that mm-hmm. Bed Bath and Beyond was known for, and and I think that's the direction they need to go in. Uh, but it's a pretty big shift from the uh, sort of flea market twenty percent off coupon mm-hmm. core way they've been running the business for a while. So so whether this is really you know fundamentally a bad strategy, or whether this is something that you know has to be done and it's going to be mm-hmm. painful. TBD, but he's certainly getting some headwinds from the broader market. But, you know, I, I often ask the question like, okay, well, for all the people that are dumping on the strategy, I'm like, okay, what would you do? You know, what's the alternative? Right. Because uh, right. it's not obvious to me that there's a mm. radically better alternative. Uh, you know, mm. they're, they're really playing from behind and they've got just a lot of factors that make this transformation uh, challenging. You know, if you're selling a lot of undifferentiated product or, you know, not highly differentiated product and the customer's got a lot of different places to go get it, whether that's online, whether that's Target, Walmart, you, know, you name it. Like, There's lots of places to go get the stuff that Bed Bath & Beyond sells that may be more convenient in some respects. So you've got mm-hmm. that challenge of what is, what is the remarkable party of your business. I think the other thing, and I can't say this confidently without seeing their internal data, but one of the things I think has been true by high, about many highly promotional retailers is they get a large chunk of their customer base, which is filled with what I call promiscuous shoppers. Mm-hmm. You know, these are customers that are not inherently loyal to the brand. They don't love you. They just kind of like you. And they are motivated by a deal. And when you start to pull out the promotion, you know, we saw this with Ron Johnson at JCPenney. We've seen this at a lot of places. You know, you start to try to lower the promotional intensity and it turns out that those customers that are kind of in this gray promiscuous area they're gone it's like i often say like you know they're really not just not that into you like if the only reason you buy from me is because i give you a huge discount well i'm just not that into you right like you're acceptable well but you're not remarkable and so my my sense is that you know particularly because we are talking about a lot of products which are commodity like 
pulling back on that, that promotional intensity, uh, you know, it's not so easy to drive the business. So I, you know, I suspect supply chain, yes, is absolutely part of the problem, but I think a big part of that is the trying to dial back on the, on the promotional intensity and that that's led to a big drop in, in traffic and, you know, ultimately conversion. Let's transition to our interview from a business that's struggling to a business I think uh, you would agree is is remarkable. We're so happy to have uh, Nancy King on from Target. It's a great discussion and, and just such a fantastic story. So uh, let's uh, let's bring her on. Well, Michael and I are excited to welcome Nancy King from Target to join the podcast. How are you today, Nancy? I am doing well. How are you? Um, I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, we usually like to start out by just having the guest tell us a little bit about themselves, their professional journey, and your current roles and responsibilities. And I have a bonus question about uh, part of your title, which I'll come back to in a second. Sounds great. Uh, so I am the SVP of product engineering at Target. Uh, and so product engineering is really all about building the tools, the technologies, the capabilities that power both our team member experience at Target and the guest experience so think of everything from Target.com and our flagship mobile app to the POS register in stores to our HR system that helps determine schedules for our stores team member and all of the technology in, in between that. My teams um, spend their time creating world-class solutions that power Target strategy um, and our future shopping experience. I have had the privilege of being at Target for 16 years now, I'm always in our technology group. Uh, and prior to Target, uh, I spent six years um, at one of the big consulting firms traveling the U.S. Um, and getting some great experiences that led me to Target. As you know, and some of our audience might know, you and I were sharing the stage at Shop Talk a little while back. And uh, we had a great discussion that we're going to build on today. But when I was telling people about my session and people were asking who was part of the, the panel, I said, well, we've got this woman from from Target. She's the Senior Vice President of Product Engineering. And just about everybody said that they had never heard that product engineering title f- for a retailer. Is that something unique to Target or something that perhaps we just uh, have not noticed? Uh, I would say it's a bit of both. 2015, um, in the fall of 2015, Target made a substantial investment into our engineering and technology practices. And at the time, we moved from what was a very traditional back office corporate IT function to an engineering destination. And with that, we moved into a product model. We embraced agile methodologies or agile methods. Um, And when we did that, we moved into a product construct. And so traditional corporate IT, other retailers don't often operate in a, a fully bespoke product model, but that's what we do. And so to that extent of product engineering, it really means all of the capabilities and all of the software that we build is organized into logical domains that are autonomously cultivated and grown um, through software development in a product model. So think Apple, Facebook, you know, all of all the traditional tech companies that everybody brings to mind, they operate in a product model and that's fairly well known. Many retailers haven't moved forward in the evolution of technology to the extent that they operate in that same model. You know, typically when we have guests, Nancy, we have them spend some time explaining the company that they work for. But I think Target, it's fair to say, doesn't need any explanation. So let's spend the time talking about this tremendous momentum 
the target has. You're just lighting it up in the past few years. I mean, it, you're fairly, you've been with the brand for a while. You've seen uh, many cycles. It's a fairly mature brand, one could say, but you wouldn't know that from the results and the amazing work you're doing. You know, at the, at the big picture level, what, what is it that's causing this or been the, the, uh, the contributor to such success and, and uh, momentum. I mean, you're re- you guys are really lighting it up. Everybody's paying attention. Talk about that for a little bit from your perspective. I would say there's been a lot of attention and a lot of questions that start with, wow, during the pandemic, Target really took off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the outcomes that we saw over the past couple of years started with investments that happened before then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say there are two kind of key differentiators that Target pursued um, over the past four years that really put us in the place to capitalize on the opportunity that came up over the past couple of years. Um, and those two areas were, one, very near and dear to my heart, technology, um, mm-hmm. and the way it can help power uh, and deliver against strategies. And the second was around our supply chain capabilities. Mm-hmm. So we came out uh, with a strategy to put the store and our physical shopping experience at the center of our uh, capabilities. So mm-hmm. we see the physical store in the center of how we serve our guests, no matter how they choose to shop, if that is digitally or physically in the store. And to do that, we had to invest in the capabilities to support fulfillment, to support operations, modernizing how we staffed and stocked and um, even allocated physical space within the store to support growing our fulfillment capabilities through those stores' footprints. And so we saw a tremendous opportunity in building capacity and building speed and efficiency by leveraging our stores as hubs, as a fulfillment vehicle. Along with that, uh, the second bigger strategic priority that we made was a focus on technology and engineering. And that's when we really invested in growing our technical teams, in increasing their skills, in building out just a top-notch in-house engineering team, like I mentioned Previously, we adopted new principles. We created a very intentional architecture to let our capabilities move forward at the pace of change of disruptive retail and honestly, at the pace of guest expectations because shopping patterns were being incredibly disrupted um, and we needed to be able to move faster and at the scale of target um, in a way that we hadn't before. And so being able to change our technology practices and how we brought software to life gave us the opportunity to respond very quickly when the disruption of the pandemic happened um, Mm -hmm. and everybody's shopping habits changed. And all of a sudden, what we were used to seeing on Cyber Monday from a volume perspective was a (laughs) Tuesday afternoon as people across the U.S. were looking Mm -hmm. for toilet paper and hand sanitizer. (laughs) So it, uh, it, it really did pay dividends that we had approached those investment areas well ahead of the disruption we saw over the past couple of years. And um, we were we were in a great position to be able to take advantage of the, the digital penetration and the shift mm. uh, that happened when um, other retailers uh, weren't as quite prepared. You know, it's that last point that, that I find so fascinating because, you know, as you describe it, it's, it's we have to take our minds back to pre-pandemic the before times when, you know, some of the decisions you were making, for example, the big focus on stores were not as, uh, you know, not everyone was making those same decisions. It's almost, you had a supernatural, uh, ability to see forward. What was there an epiphany in the business that said, listen, th- you know, we think, you know, again, pre COVID, 
that this is the direction it's going and, and we're convinced that this is the way. And then, the, you know, how does an organization get so aligned? That's a lot of work to get, you know, you must need to align the culture to achieve all that. And, and in the expectation or the anticipation of that being the final outcome, is it, was there a single epiphany or did it develop over time? You were part of it. How did, how did it evolve? Mm-hmm. I would say it was a bit of an evolution, but you hit on two pieces there that I think were key to it. Um, the first one was that we put the center, we put the guest at the center of mm. all of our strategic choices, all of our planning activities and how we operate. And by having the guest at the center, it became clearer as we were working on capabilities that channel shift was real, shopping expectations were changing. And while everyone was talking about omnichannel and we were certainly embracing omnichannel, it really meant something different to pull the friction out of a shopping experience. So it truly was omnichannel. So there weren't um, strategic or financial incentives to try and get a shopper to shop in a certain way or get a product delivered in a certain way. We had to have the flexibility and the operational scalability to deliver a product in whichever way the guest wanted despite however they chose to buy it and decoupling those two things, the purchase and the delivery, the flexibility of that gives us the opportunity to meet the guest in whichever way they want to shop and which in whichever way they want to receive the product. The other piece you hit on there was culture um, because it takes a lot to move a really large Mm -hmm. company like target through agile thinking and test and learn. We all, we heard test and learn a lot at shop talk Mm. last week. (laughs) Um, But what that really means is, is comfort with failure and comfort with being less than perfect and putting something out there that you think is right. And knowing that something, some part of it is going to be wrong and, and being ready to very quickly respond to that. Um, And I would say what we've seen over the past couple of years is this tremendous shift to embracing agile thinking and, not aiming for perfection, um, aiming for a best first step, and then letting the guest give us the feedback to guide where those next steps after that go. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And one of the things, and Michael kind of touched on this, but that you guys really went against, I think, the prevailing wisdom, you know, this idea that physical retail, I mean, I think everybody kind of agrees the retail apocalypse thing is is kind of silly, but certainly there was this pull that you really should be investing less in stores and more in all things digital. And you guys really chose to do both, which I think is is uh, really quite amazing. I mean, I kind of wish it wasn't so special because uh, I think a lot of companies are probably kicking themselves that they didn't get started earlier. But one of the things I'd love to do is go a little bit deeper on this, this stores as hub concept in terms of what that really means. Uh, you and I were chatting about how um, – in getting ready for shop talk that I personally didn't see, I didn't witness some of these changes in the target store. And my sense is you did a lot of things in, in the back office, but could you just talk about what it's taken to go from a place where you've got 20% of your products being ordered online, but something like 96% of products being fulfilled from store, uh, particularly when stores that were largely built for kind of a singular purpose, and now they're playing all these different roles. Can you just kind of get into some of the details about how that how that actually works? A lot of that has been powered through technology um, and operational changes. I would say the two things together, people um, and the process and tech that they use. 
So when you think about Stores as Hub and you think about um, the stats you just shared, there is a tremendous amount of change within the store, within team member roles in the store, and within the tools they use to make that happen. So, And technology has played a, a huge part in enabling that. When you think about same-day services, so they are a cornerstone of that fulfillment method. Obviously, ship to home is still real, and we put items in boxes and send them to your house and your doorstep. But our same-day services are an overwhelming majority of uh, that delivery, and that is buy online, pick up in store, it is drive up, and then it is shipped. Um, so same-day delivery from your local store. And all of that is driven through technology and process changes within the store. So if you looked at a bird's eye view of the store, obviously there are changes that have to happen. In the back room, you will see um, configuration and tooling and processes that look a lot like a miniature fulfillment center. You are picking product, you are packing it, you are labeling it and shipping it, whether it's going in the back of a FedEx truck or going to one of our sortation centers or being picked up by a ship shopper directly from the store for delivery. And out on the sales floor, you are seeing team members um, picking and collating orders in a way that they didn't before. So a couple of things have really powered that. We have uh, an application called My Device. And so our team members have individual handheld mobile devices. And we rolled out thousands more over the past couple of years to give each team member on the sales floor up-to-date information on inventory, on sales, on product, on inventory that's coming in and on the health of the business. Meaning, do I have a lot of orders that are piling up that guests are pulling into the parking lot soon expecting to have brought out to their car? So we have um, invested quite a bit in making sure that we have the operational understanding of what's going on within a store. Then we developed specific applications to support each of these new capabilities we're delivering. So we have a drive-up app that lets uh, our team members who are in fulfillment roles now within the store um, which has certainly grown over the past several years, understand how many orders have we taken? What items are in those orders? Are they fresh? Are they frozen? Are they shelf-stable or general merchandise? Um, how many are coming in the next hour? How many are coming tomorrow? Which ones do I have to get by ship cutoff time uh, to get in the back of a truck by the end of the day? And that helps us um, be very thoughtful and operationally efficient with staffing and um, sequencing of the work within a store. Then we have our ePIC app, um, and this is uh, a bit of the magic because we continually tweak and iterate um, this as we get learnings. This is what guides our team members through the store or through the back room to pick and fulfill those orders. Um, and part of what uh, you've called out is I don't really see a lot of Target team members walking around the floor picking all these orders, but it's such a large volume. Um, we have continued to refine and look at different ways to make it most efficient for our team members to pick in the back room if the product is there and if they can fulfill a majority of the basket there. And when they do shop on the sales floor, how do we pull together several orders or batch them up so I only make one pass down this aisle, but I get seven different products for eight or for six different orders um, so that we're not um, congesting or um, adding friction into the shopping experience for the guests that have walked into our store um, and love the experience of being in store to select their product themselves. And so those are just a couple examples, but being able to create each of those pieces and then sequence them together so we can be operationally efficient at the scale that Target requires to deliver some of these items um, is a bit of the magic behind how we can bring it to market so quickly. And then while we do that, how we can make sure it's, it's a world-class experience, both for our team members and our guests. Have you actually had to reclaim space from selling square footage to accomplish the back office or back of the house 
part of this? Um, in some places, yes. So when COVID first started and uh, drive up in particular exploded, so we saw 600% growth in drive up early on in the pandemic, um, our fitting rooms were closed because people were not um, physically touching and trying on. There was a lot of um, safety concerns. And so we actually started using the fitting rooms in most stores to stage drive up items because it just exploded on us. We hadn't pre-allocated space to cover that. Um, and so that worked for most of 2020. Um, and that gave us a chance to start to get ahead. And at the same time, we were rolling out um, fresh grocery into drive up, which we hadn't had in most markets. So now we have temperature controlled coolers um, in front location spaces that we hadn't allocated before. And so we did start to um, reclaim some sales space. And then um, over time, as we did remodels and reshuffled, um, put that space back, but just in different places so we could still have staging space closer to the front doors and access to the drive up lanes to be able to get those items out quickly. That's such I mean, a great you, example you, of not letting perfect mm-hmm. be the enemy of the good, right? <laughs> to be yes. willing to, to be willing to do that, even though you knew that was not going to be the long-term solution, presumably. Exactly. You describe this as magic. As I listen to you, it's it's like art and science blending together. And and you know, both Steve and I spent a fair bit of time in retail stores, and I'm just trying to imagine the structural massive change that both the supply chain and and your stores are going through. Take us a little bit behind the scenes, and you talked about people, process, and technology, but it must be impacting the layouts of the store, the workflows, everything. And and how have you been? Dealing with that, you know, these volumes of kind of the waterline has gone up and it hasn't receded. So all these things are still very popular. Um, I, I think there are probably a couple key parts to that. Uh, the first is we did change roles in the store. So we have uh, roles that are specifically dedicated to fulfillment now um, and understanding the health of mm-hmm. the fulfillment pipeline with orders, whether those are going out uh, to be shipped to home or into a drive up uh, spot in the parking lot. So I think that was a, a pretty large one. Uh, like I mentioned, we did reallocate space within the store, but the, the biggest ongoing area that we're still focused on is getting the right balance of temperature-controlled storage. Um, mm-hmm. And so in some of our most popular stores, um, you will see messages at sometimes during that say the, the day that say, whoops, sorry, our fridges are full. Um, because we can forecast and understand down to cubic space within a cooler how many orders are picked and not yet picked up and how many are in the pipeline to be picked where we know that the density within the coolers that we have at that store are going to be full. And so now we automatically will pause taking new orders until enough orders are picked Mm -hmm. up that we know we've relieved um, temperature space within that store. And so little tweaks like that we continue uh, to see because we are uh, very space aware and very operationally aware that some stores behave very differently than other stores. Um, And so we have to be able to nuance the experience at a very busy store in a different way than we do um, at a less populated one. The other thing um, related to space and like physical store layout uh, that we really focus on is how we do path team members through the store um, Mm -hmm. and how we pick. So we have done tests um, to have, let's call it a team member who specializes in apparel always be the one who goes and finds the apparel items in an order, no matter what um, the traditional routing in another store would tell you. Because finding the women's blue size medium t-shirt mm-hmm. on a rack of 50 shirts for <laughs> someone who's less experienced with with apparel is really hard. It's like an Easter egg hunt. And so we have I tried to I guess volume helps with all this too, right? I mean, it's it's been said that, uh, you know, when you've got a 
more than a handful of orders that goes up to hundreds of orders, then you can you can develop vertical expertise, right? And free exactly. up and dedicate resources to exactly what you're describing, yes. right? And so like just like the the mantra of, you know, let's let's not aim for perfect right out of the gate, we are now testing different ways to go about fulfilling those orders in different locations that have different profiles. And we know that one size won't fit all. We start that way because it's the simplest to learn and it doesn't burden a bunch of assumptions on how we think things will work. We let life actually show us how it should work. <laughs> um, and that has that has proven very successful because now we've hit a point of maturity where we can handle the nuance. Like you have to nail the fundamentals before you try and get tricky with things. Yeah. Um, and we we really believe in that, like get it out, make sure it will scale and it's rock solid and then start figuring out where the value add additions go. It's like a whole new chapter, that book, The Goal, where you're working on the theory of constraints, right? The key constraint turns out to be this, how much room is in the fridge. Yes. Right? As, as one yes. of those things that probably didn't, and, I, know, I don't know if it would have occurred to everyone in, at the beginning of that of the process. Well, right? it's, it's funny because um, when, when 2020 started, we had plans to roll out drive up um, across the nation in a very different pace. It was going to take most of 2020 into a little bit of 2021. And we had lots of discussion on coolers and the cost of coolers and where to put them and where to reclaim space. And then the pandemic hit and safety was number one for everyone. And people needed drive up to get their food for that week. And all of the debate around where to put the coolers and how many to go kind of went out the window. And we said, we'll start with this and then we'll figure out where it's not working. And then we'll solve the problems where they're not working. Um, and I think that was a really big lesson that we learned and then took with us going forward. We haven't we haven't let that revert back. Um, you you have to start somewhere, and sometimes the easiest place is just to start with what you think is right, but not try and then assume what will come next. But I'm I'm curious. It's so fascinating, and uh, you know, Michael and I often talk on the podcast about barriers to innovation. And even though it seems like you learned an awful lot along the way, it still seems as if you were signing up in the beginning. I mean, Target in general, not you, well, you personally, I guess, but also the organization was signing up for a very massive amount of, of culture change, process change, tremendous amount of investment. Did you, like, what, sometimes I talk about, like, uh, trying to understand the risk that actually it's more risky not to change. Than to change, but I'm I'm just curious how, in, in your world, you perceive the risk uh, of of getting started on this because it seems like a pretty big leap that you made. Yeah, it. Uh, I would say again, it started before the pandemic, and like when I think about technology specifically that started to drive um, some of the the operational uh, change. Target used to be very focused on. Um, flawless execution and making sure every store was perfect. When we started to make the changes in technology that we did um, seven years ago, it was because we we knew that technology would play a significant place in business strategy and advancing capabilities forward. And doing nothing was riskier than doing something, even if something wasn't perfect. Uh, we made significant changes in October of that year, which in the retail season is when you're kind of like shutting the doors and like getting ready to lock down for peak season. Sure. Um, because we recognized that we needed to make that change. Um, the, the difference is we have the agility so that if we do make a change and it's not right, we can quickly respond to that and fix it. 
And if you can't have one without the other, you can't be ready to place big bets if you don't have the ability to quickly change and respond to what you learn when you place that bet. And so I think it's both of those pieces together from a technology, but, but also from an operational perspective and a business perspective in how we work together. Those, those three pieces at scale, at the scale of Target, always have to be working in concert to really make any big change successful. Well, we're, we're closing in on our time together, uh, and we typically would ask what's next. I mean, it sounds like everything is, is, everything is next at Target you know, as you respond to evolving customer and team members' needs. You mentioned a couple of really neat things from the stage. I, I think at the stage shop talk, I think you talked even about returns or getting, uh, getting my caramel macchiato while I'm picking up my, uh, my orders. Could you share a bit yes. of insight as to, as to what comes next? Our- our uh, number one request, we are finally going to uh, deliver on that this year. Uh, when you place a drive-up order and you let us know you're on your way, uh, you can also order a Starbucks beverage. <laughs> and we will bring out your order and we will bring that um, you know, cold coffee or hot macchiato right to your car. Uh, we will be piloting this year. I don't know the markets yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we will be rolling out nationwide after that. Um, and the second big thing um, that we've gotten a lot of requests for is being able to do a return through a drive-up service. Right, right. Um, so whether I purchased it online, in the store, or through a same-day fulfillment method, um, being able to pull up in the parking lot, no appointment necessary, um, and return your item to the store. Hmm. Um, those are two things that we are actively working on right now, along with growing Ulta and our, our amazing beauty experience, and then um, enhancing our in-store shopping Disney stores, um, and all of the other great reasons on why uh, people continue to come into the physical store while they still shop Target online. Oh, it's fantastic. And and I love the idea of uh, curbside returns. Some of the retailers in Canada, particularly in the province of Quebec, had to suddenly stand that up a couple of months ago when the government said you must be vaccinated to go into their stores, which caught everybody by surprise. And they're like, well, how do people do returns? And it was quite... <laughs> It seems like it would be easy, just the opposite of what you currently do, but it's yeah. a lot harder than that. It is. As we all know, returns are never easy, and they're, they're such an important part of the customer journey, right? So if you, mm-hmm. that's a, a, they always strike me as, boy, you can really win with the customer handling a return well. So uh, I wish you uh, best luck, but by the sounds of what you're doing, you know, I have a lot of confidence. It's going to be an amazing experience. Listen, on behalf of uh, Stephen, I really want to thank you for joining us on Remarkable Retail Podcast and just such a such a, an insight into uh, what is a phenomenal retail story, probably one of the most impressive stories coming out of the COVID era. So uh, once again, Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It has been my pleasure. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great interviews and insights and new episodes will show up each and every week. Sure to check out our YouTube channel and last but not least, Tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and co-host of the Conversations of Commerce Next podcast, the voice of retail podcast, keynote speaker, and host of the all-new Last Request Barbecue Cooking Show on YouTube. And you can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.